got your Bibles, turn to Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 is where we're going to begin. Uh, last time I was with you a couple weeks ago, we were in Matthew 4, 17. These are basically parallel verses uh, here. It's, uh, both were saying the same thing from Jesus, the gospel writers there were quoting Jesus. And uh, we're in a series called Kingdom People, and we're talking about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is. And I think there's a lot of confusion on what the kingdom of God is. And yet Jesus wants us to think about the kingdom of God. It's Jesus' uh, uh, primary theme of his teaching and his preaching and so forth. And I think we're by the kingdom of God. And, uh, and so uh, we're going to do, I have doing like three sermons, and then we're going to go back to it in November, October time, just because we are so consumed with the kingdoms of this world. And I think God's people need to be more consumed with his kingdom. It's not that kingdoms of this world are unimportant. I'm not saying that. But Jesus' kingdom is more important. And Jesus' kingdom is what keeps all other kingdoms in check. Uh, and so it's really important. So here's Jesus. He's beginning his ministry with these words. This is how Jesus begins his ministry. By the way, it's public ministry here. Verse 14 and 15 in Mark's gospel. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So what does Jesus mean to answer this morning? I mean, this is going to be like a, a teaching here. And by the way, I'm going to simplify this as much as possible because I think a lot of people have overcomplicated it. And so if you feel like Josh, you're treating us like first graders here a little bit. That's not my intention. My intention is just to make this really simple. So you can walk away kind of going, I, I think I understand what the kingdom of God is. If you don't walk away doing that, I failed this morning. And so here's my best shot. So how are we going to start with this? Well, we have to remember that Jesus, he is talking to people just like you. Okay, that lived during a certain time, during a certain period, and that would, his words would have had context and otherwise. So they would have been thinking of, of particular kingdoms, particular empires, all of those sorts of things, particular histories. All of that is there. They, this is, this is not, a, not a fictional book, and so it wasn't written in a vacuum as a space. And so people are thinking about certain things during this time. Now, what kingdom was dominant? Well, there is the Roman Empire, the Roman Kingdom here. And so we're going to begin by just looking at the Roman Empire as Jesus says these words. Because one of the empires or one of the things that would have popped up in the people's heads would have been the Roman Empire in contrast, Jesus' kingdom in contrast to the Roman Empire. So here's the Roman Empire. Hey, I'm going to have a map up here for you and on your screen. So that's the Roman Empire. You see the Roman Empire, a lot of Eastern Europe. You have Syria thrown in. You have parts of what would have been like... Uh, West Asia, uh, um, Israel, obviously, all of Northern Africa. And so all of this space is controlled by the Roman Empire. And all of you have gone to school for the most part. So all of you know about the Roman Empire, uh, about how big it was, about how wealthy it, it was, about everything that it controlled and everything that it was able to do. Uh, it, it, was, it was a very powerful empire, and it took a lot of resources to make this happen. And they had a lot of resources because this area is a very resource-rich area. When you talk about the uh, northern part of Africa, a very, a very 
resource-rich area, most of Europe. All of this is very impressive for that time. And so they're very, they're very wealthy. They had a lot of resources. They were able to form Rome's roads, right? We've all heard of the Roman roads. But not only that, they were able to travel about as fast as you possibly could, not only because of their roads, but because of the air. So forth was one of the fastest ways to get different places. And so all of this has, uh, is, has transpired basically by the time Jesus is living and Jesus is speaking. And it consumes what was Israel. Israel is a part of the Roman kingdom or the Roman empire. And so all of this would have come together and come together in people's minds. And so this would have taken a lot of time, a lot of dedication, a lot of work, a lot of effort to make this happen as you look at the Roman empire and the Roman kingdom and how big it is. And so you see this kingdom, you see what's going on here. Now, what makes this the kingdom? This is where we, I'm gonna get really elementary with you. As people think about kingdoms, as we think about the kingdom of God and the word kingdom itself. And I'm gonna give you four things here that make this a kingdom here. And here they are, they're really simple, right? One, a kingdom has to have a king, right? Or an emperor. So you would have heard Caesar is Lord. Go back there for me, Michael, just stay there. So there's gonna have a king about the duration of it. And then they have a people, right? Yeah, a kingdom's no good without people. Uh, people are probably a kingdom's most important resource. Right? The kingdom are, is, kingdoms thrive on the duty of the people and their ability to serve the kingdom itself and to be a part of the kingdom and kind of to rule under the king or the emperor or the Caesar in this instance. So you have a king, you have a people. You think about vast kingdoms and big kingdoms. That's, that's really in many people's minds what makes them great. Like how big is this kingdom? How much land were, did, did, did they have? Was the land any good? Even as you think about Northern Africa there, Nor, Northern Africa is fairly fertile. You get south of there and it's like desert. That's the reason Rome didn't want to control it. I, some of you know that I've been to Kenya and when we, you fly basically from Europe over Northern Africa, um, and over the Mediterranean and, and all, you get past just kind of the northern part of Africa, it's desert. And it's just not desert. It's like desert forever. Uh, you, you look down one point and then it's like three hours and you look down again and it's still desert flying, right? And so the, the places that they did have were very fertile, very good, and it's a really gr great territory that they, that they controlled. And then the fourth thing are laws. To be a part of any kingdom, uh, any place, any country, any group of people that you're gonna to commit to, there are laws that keep the kingdom together, basically. And so those are just real four basic things that make up a kingdom. Just, I just want you to know that. Now here, if we just define it in one simple sentence as we think about a kingdom, this is what a kingdom is here. It's a kingdom is a people, go ahead and move forward with me. A kingdom is a people governed by a king. That's what a kingdom is. A kingdom is a people governed by a king. So now here's the question that we are going to answer this morning or seek to answer this morning for you, is what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? What did people hear from Jesus or what did they think they heard or what was Jesus trying to communicate when he said, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand? What are the similarities and what are the differences? Well, Let's just begin with, I'm gonna take you through the similarities here. That's what we're gonna focus on this morning. And it's simply this, is that there's a king. 
all kingdoms have kings. All kingdoms have somebody who is above them all. And now the people, when they're listening to Jesus here, these are, these are people who aren't really Romans by choice, by the way, the, the people that Jesus is speaking to. He is speaking to a bunch of Jewish people or Israelite people. And so when, G, when they, they are hearing Jesus say, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand, they're not just thinking of like the Roman empire, the Roman kingdom. They're thinking about Jesus restoring glory. And not only that, they're thinking about a specific king in a specific time. They're thinking about King David. When right, David's power and influence and glory in, this, in the nation of Israel, where it was at its height, where it was at its best. Uh, this came to me in the first service. This wasn't part of it. But like they were, they were thinking this, right? This is not a statement. that I, they, here's, here's what they're thinking. Right? Don't get upset. It's a joke. But they're thinking, make Israel great again, Right? When Jesus says that, that's what they were thinking. It's, it's just, you know, that's what they're thinking here. And so when Jesus says this, this is what comes to mind. And by the way, when Jesus says it, this is what comes to mind. And then later on, after uh, Jesus's, Jesus's ministry, other people are thinking this. Like Paul is thinking this here. When he writes to Timothy, his protege here, this is kind of how he's explaining him to guide the church and here's what he says in 2 in Timothy, Jesus Christ, in other words, remember Jesus is king, Jesus is the Messiah, who is risen from the grave, the offspring of David is preached in my gospel. Now, what Paul is reminding them of here in this simple sentence is that Jesus is the offspring of David, that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, that he's the king. But not only that, like he's the Davidic king, and he's trying to remind them of their formal glory when David was king. He's trying to remind them of the kingdoms and the greatness of the kingdoms. Now, all kingdoms and the kingdom of Israel itself, because this was going to lead us into Jesus's story. Ultimately, it comes to a peak there where Jesus is. Now, when you think about Israel, when you think about Israel's greatness, what makes Israel great? Well, from a, a very simple uh, reading, if you read the Old Testament, and I think what a lot of people do is they read about Israel, they read about the Jewish people, the Hebrew people who were enslaved by Egypt. And so these people were slaves. This mass group of people were enslaved by Egypt. They were able to come out of slavery, what would be complex laws, a way of doing life together, a, a, a fairly strong kingdom with not a ton of people compared to different kingdoms in the world and so forth. And so you have this complex and sophisticated na nation that, by the way, we're still using uh, many of their books and teachings and all that. Just if you look at the old small people, is very big, very broad. And so just from that, it's a really impressive thing that this group of slaves who eventually got their freedom, moved on, become this nation to do all of this, to influence the world in the way that they have. Really cool, right? That sh primarily should be told. The Exodus is a fantastic story. It's a story that has to be told. But if you just tell it as a group of slaves, a group of oppressed people coming out, establishing a kingdom, having all this influence and so forth, you're missing the point. You're missing the primary point here. The point is this, that the Old Testament is trying to make, that God promised Abraham that he would become a great nation. And that Abraham told in a way that God's people were slaves. God rescued them from slavery. God promised them land. God gave them land. And these people made God or acted as if God was 
king, that God was their king, that he was above everything. And as long, this is, this is by the way, almost what the entirety of the Old Testament was, is, is about as far as the rise and fall of Israel and the rise and fall of God's people. As long as God remained king, as long as they put God first, the kingdom was great. The, the kingdom was moving forward. The kingdom was being actually God's kingdom, that God's people were being God's people when that took place. And God was blessing them as that happened. And so the story is about these people who put God first. And when they don't, they don't do well. When they do, they do do well. Then there's the story of the king. So that's the story basically of them collectively. Then there's the story of the king, the king that they go back to and the king that they Right, is really important because this is a special king. Again, just reading the story, but maybe just as is or from a, a view outside of really where the Bible is trying to go, what you're actually seeing or what you hear a lot of times is David is the ultimate underdog, right? I mean, he's this little shepherd boy who is a teenager. Everybody's afraid of Goliath. Goliath is holding back the armies of Israel, this big Philistine. Nobody will fight Goliath, but if you can defeat Goliath, you can kind of protect the nation and save a bunch of people and all those sorts of things. And the only person that's a sling and a couple stones, three stones, and he defeats Goliath. It's a, it's a fantastic story about the underdog, kind of like Israel coming out of slavery. And this boy rises to king and rules the nation and the nation seems to thrive. Cool underdog story. But if that's the primary narrative, you miss the point. If that's the story, you miss the point. The point of David defeating the Goliath is that God defeats Goliath. The point is David going to Goliath and knowing what God has done in his past, how God has helped him as a shepherd defeat bears and lions and so forth. And he's saying, if God can defeat them, he can defeat Goliath through me. And then if you continue to read the story, what you discover is that God gets the credit for defeating Goliath. It's not that David doesn't participate in it. He does. God uses human, human participants for his goodness, for his glory, all those sorts of things. But it's actually God who does it through David. And then David establishes the kingdom. Well, what makes David a great king? Well, what makes David a great king and why they keep going back to David is not just the power and influence the nation of Israel had. What makes David a great king is that David was a man after God's own heart. That's what makes David a great king. And when he failed to follow God in different ways, they didn't do as well. And so don't miss that, those stories there. Now we have the third story. And this is the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is interesting. It's not... It's not a, a person who rose from nothing to something during his lifetime, really. It's just not. And the same way that Israel was or David was or whatever, Jesus was born of humble means. Jesus did have followers. He had 12 followers and so forth who were kind of largely empty at the cross. Jesus' crowds came and went depending on the level of persecution or depending on his teachings. If you, if you read Jesus' teachings now, I'm not sure they would be elevated to where they were really without something happening that happened. Because Jesus' teachings, they're kind of weird sometimes. They really flip how most of us think even upside down if you really take them seriously. Like go home and read the Sermon on the Mount, which is about the kingdom of God. It, it flips how you think you should interact with the world almost upside down. So what makes Jesus, Jesus great is not his teachings. It's what makes Jesus great 
right? Is simply this, is that he rose from the dead. Jesus is a man who went around, yes, he loved the poor, he, he did miracles, he had really interesting teaching, but we would not follow Jesus as we do. Jesus would not be a big deal, and he would not be considered king or God if that would have the dead. Him rising from the dead is what proves or what vindicates, as many of the writers say, of him being God himself, of Jesus being king. Jesus is king because he currently rules and reigns. Jesus is king because he is God. He is the God of Israel and he is our God. And it depends on us worshiping him and giving him glory and thanks and goodness. For us, Israel is great because God promised to give them land and a kingdom and he did. David is great because God helped him defeat Goliath and David was a man after God's own heart. Jesus is great because he is God risen from the dead and he is king because he is God. Now, Paul says that this is the gospel, that that's the gospel, that Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord. Paul here says, obviously, right, Jesus is the offspring of David. Jesus, when he shows up, he says, the king. now I want you to see here what Paul leaves out at this moment. It's not that it's not a part of the gospel. It is. But Jesus leaves this out too at this moment. Just at this moment. It's the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is part of the gospel. You need your sins forgiven. But the gospel actually begins, and it begins in Romans this way too, where Paul just lays out the gospel. The Romans begins with talking about how Jesus is Lord here. And so we need to be forgiven of our sins, yes. And we need to invite Christ into our hearts and into our lives and to be changed by him. I believe salvation is an experience that we have but not at the expense of maybe beginning with Jesus being king, Jesus being Lord. And so, I, you know, as I was thinking about this and reading about this, and I'm guilty of this sometimes even in my own ministry, like often we go straight to the forgiveness of sins instead of beginning really in the first place, which is Jesus being king, Jesus being Lord. And I think this is really important for all of us, even as we think about our, our evangelism, right? What are we leading with? Are we leading with Jesus' rulership, with his kingship, and so forth? And I think we need this at this time. For one reason, we think about how are we evangelizing people? You know, I've got three young kids, and so I'm reading about what are our kids doing? Well, most kids, believe it or not, if you raise them in church, they will make a commitment to Christ. About 90% will, right? If their parents attend church together and say something like, I invited Christ into my heart, or I asked him, Jesus to forgive me of my sins. Well, by the time they get to 35 only about 20% or 22% or so forth are, are doing it. Maybe one of the reasons, and I, I can't prove this to you, but maybe one of the reasons is, is because we're, we're only doing the latter. We're only saying like, and that, this is a big deal. So I, I'm struggling to even tell, like having your sins forgiven is a big deal, right? Um, inviting Christ in your heart, a big deal. If we are not asking them to declare Jesus as Lord, really, like Jesus really being first place, not just like a get out of jail free card here, right? Are we doing that? Are we, are we, are we counting, are we explaining to them the cost? Like this means you're going to follow, like if Jesus is a king, I mean, it ch changes everything. That means like if Jesus says it, you do it. 
That means like if Jesus, yeah, you get the point there. Jesus needs to be first. We need to be calling people to make Jesus first in their lives along with the forgiveness of sins. So first, the kingdom of God has a king. Jesus is a king. Really simple, really straight out forward there. So what about people? The kingdom of God has a people. Now, who are the people? The people are those who exalt Jesus as king. Really simple here. You exalt Jesus as king, you are part of the people of God. Now look at this with me. This is very familiar in, in churches like ours, which are like kind of evangelical, Bible-believing churches, right? This teaching almost can, can be lost on us here when we talk about being born again. But this was, this was really confusing for somebody like Nicodemus. It, it really is. And it's because it's, it's weird. Just remember that. Jesus is telling people they got to be born again. Like, what does that mean? So John 3, 1 through 6, people who exalt Jesus as king. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God and no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say God. Now think about that. You have to be born again to be a part of the kingdom of God. You need to think about that. What does that mean? Nicodemus is, he's caught off guard by this. You gotta be, look, at, look at the question he asks here. He says, how, how can a man be born when he is old? Right? Like, how can you be born after you've already been born? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Just, yeah, it's kind of weird. Um, and then Jesus answers him. He, Jesus is gonna double down here. He just, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and a spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, Jesus is really clear. You have to be reborn to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so what does he mean by that? So he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. And then he goes on, then he goes on, and he continues on the same teaching, but we kind of get to that part like we often kind of skip over, like, what's he talking about there? Um, But it's really important. Verse 14 and 15, and And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus talks about the new birth. So what is the new birth? Well, the new birth, I believe the salvation is an experience that we have. It's an experience where we decide to believe in Jesus Christ, to receive the forgiveness of sins, invite him into our heart, however you want to say that there, but there's that experience there that you believe that you need Jesus and that you need to make him first place in your life, however that looks like, but it's a rebirth. Now, how is that expressed? Jesus says it's expressed in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert and that whoever believes in Jesus may have eternal life. In other words, this is the expression of those who have been... Now, I think Jesus is... is is kind of has this double meaning. Like, so Moses is lifting up the serpent. Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up. Now, so we have to answer, what is he talking about? He is talking about the cross. Jesus is lifted up on the cross and people are looking at him on the cross. And on the cross, people are being forgiven of their sins. But the only reason we know that people have been forgiven of their sins is because Jesus was lifted higher than the cross. He did not stay on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus is ruling... And therefore, God's people are those who are exalting Jesus who rose from the dead. So kingdom people are those who simply believe. 
that Jesus died and that he rose, that Jesus has been exalted, that Jesus is king, and those who continue to lift Jesus up. And so on, on the other hand, right, those who do not believe this are not a part of the kingdom of God. So you have God's people and you have those who are not God's people. Those who are truly born, Jesus would put, repent and believe the gospel. The good news is that Jesus is risen and that you can too. Right? The good news is that Jesus is Lord right? <laughs> above all the kingdoms of this earth, that he is ruling and reigning. The good news is that you can be forgiven of your sins. The good news is, is that your life can be transformed if you put God first. Kingdom people believe that. Kingdom people believe that. So we have a king, we have a people as part of the kingdom of God, and then there's a territory. Now, a territory, this is where theologians disagree, that the territory is simply the visible church. It's the visible church, right? So those who kind of disagree, just real quick, right, they, they don't see it as being the church, really. I believe that it is the church. It's the gathering of the church. And let me show you why. I think Jesus taught that. I think Jesus taught this. Matthew 16, 15 through 19. Now, Jesus is asking Peter specifically, but his disciples are listening in on this conversation. Like, who do people say I am? Who are people I, I, talking? Who are people saying John the Baptist is? And all those sorts of things. And so this is an extension of that conversation as that conversation continues forward. And I want you to just pay attention on the, the progression of this conversation. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? This is a question that Jesus asks Simon Peter. And Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ. Really important. Peter is saying that you are the Messiah. You are the person who is going to come on David's behalf, like an institute to kingdom here. The son of the living God. So not only that, you're the son of God. You're the son of David. You're the son of God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. In other words, blessed are you, son of Jonah. Should just put that in the translation. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, and so there's Jesus, by the way, we talk about new rebirth. There's the experiential part, right? God is actually the one who <laughs> makes you believe. It's, it's, it's part of being a Christian. It's God at work in your life. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my house. I shall not prevail against it, against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Peter, let's be very clear about this. Here's what he does. He declares Christ as king. This is what he does. And then on top of that, on Jesus' response to that, this is what Jesus does. On that, I'll build my church. Now, I don't think on literally on Peter, Jesus is going to build his church. On that statement, Jesus is building his church. When Peter declares, that is what I'm going to build my church on. Now, give you context a little bit. What does church mean? What does the word mean? The word church is a word that is primarily, in this time, a secular word. It's a word that means local assembly. It's ecclesia in the Greek. It means a local assembly, but not just a local assembly, a specific type of local assembly. It's a political assembly. It's a group of people that come together, citizens and leaders who come together to meet about political and social matter, matters under, in this, point in this point in time, right, under Roman rule. And so these are people who gather for political reasons under Caesar's rule to help rule and reign under Caesar. And so P Jesus is telling Peter here, by the way, I'm going to bring you to, I, I, I'm going to bring people together, this is what the church is, who are going to come together under the king to reign and rule, to be a part of my kingdom. 
And so the church are the people who, who come together under Jesus' reign and rule and are Jesus' citizens, are Jesus' people. And they are people who come out of the world to be together, to meet, who proclaim Jesus as king, make him first place, and then go back into the world and show that that is a reality in their lives. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking when you say, well, I'm not sure, I'm not sure the church, right, is the kingdom of God, right? Because Jesus said something like this, right, in John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world, right? The church is of the world, right? We're meeting together, right? We see around, we're still, still alive. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I, might be not, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So what does Jesus mean by that? Jesus doesn't mean that you actually won't be able to see the kingdom. Jesus doesn't mean that it's, it's just like this spiritual kingdom. There's a physical aspect of it, and I believe that it is the church. What he means is that it will look different than the world. It will look different. And so sometimes the church will come together and it will meet right, over and against the world. The world is telling me to do this. The world is telling me to believe this. The world is telling me to be this, right? The church will come together and say, no, this is who God has called us to be. This is what God has called. That is what Jesus means by, I am not of this world. You see, the church is in the world. It's just not of the world here. And that is true of the kingdom of God, by the way. Is that, uh, and, and to maintain, by the way, to maintain our dignity as kingdom people, we must believe that the church is not of this world in the sense that we are fundamentally different than the kingdoms of this world. That our job at, at best, when we actually to keep kingdoms at check, right, is to be salt and light, to be different. At worst, for them to look at us and say like, you know what, they got it right. We got it wrong. Or to do what's right, even in the midst of what is wrong going on around us there. And so we've got a, we've got a king, we've got Jesus, we've got a people, people who exalt Jesus as king. We've got a territory, which is actually the church. And this is why, by the way, with your watching, and I know some people, the virus is real. I'm not going to downplay the virus or anything. But don't give up on the church. Do not give up on the local church. Everybody needs to be praying about and thinking about. And maybe it's... to. Next week, maybe it's in two years. I don't know. I do know, like, the longer you probably put it off, the harder it is. But the church is really important in Jesus' view. Uh, and so just don't give up on it. Our, our people need the church now more than ever. Right? They just do. You just need to, you need to hear that. So you have, you have, you have a, a king, Jesus. You have a people. People exalt Jesus as king. You have a territory, the church, a visible church, and then you have laws. These are just necessary actions, necessary actions. Now, the church actually casts a pretty wide net here, right? And even our own church, right? we don't have, if you go to, to like our website and we say, here's what it takes to belong to the church, you don't have to jump through a lot of hoops, right? Hoops. This is not a lot of, this is not about certain behavior. I'm not giving you certain behaviors. I do think the Bible lays out right, certain behaviors to belong, right? They're just going to kind of flow from you. But we're all going to fail. We all need grace. But here, I'm just going to narrow it down to real three simple, simple actions here, 
And some don't even really feel like actions. They feel more like beliefs. Well, the first one is a, is a belief here. And Scott McKnight helps lay these out and helps me even think about it. And the first is really simple. Is you believe in Jesus. We've already talked about that. Right? You, you can't belong to the kingdom of God if you don't believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in the king. Right? John 1.12 says this. But all who do receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's who have the right to the kingdom, who have the keys to the kingdom, are those who state that Jesus is Lord, that he is Messiah, that he is king. Second is that you, you're going to follow Jesus. You're, you're going to commit to following Jesus. Jesus says, for the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. So this is the repenting part. The repenting part is simply like quit trusting in yourself. Trust in Jesus. If Jesus says it, right, do it, even if it's hard, even if it's hard. So Jesus, he said this, by the way, about this, about following him. He said this to the crowd. He said, if anyone wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way and take up your cross daily and follow me. So you need to believe in Jesus. Testify about Jesus. You will talk about Jesus if you have been reborn, if you are a part of his kingdom. You just will. John 15, 26 through 27 says, but I will send you the advocate. He's talking about the Holy Spirit here, the spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father and will testify, and will testify all about me. And you must also testify about me. So these are the governing principles of the kingdom. These are the laws of the kingdom. So it makes you a part of the kingdom. So what is the kingdom of God? Just a simple sentence like I did with worldly kingdoms here. So sum this up. I want you to be able to walk out of here and just be able to have a pretty good idea here. The kingdom of God are people ruled by God who have, been, who have appointed Jesus as king. That's the kingdom of God. When you look around in this room, you are seeing the kingdom of God. You're seeing people who are part of the kingdom of God. That's pretty cool. It's really neat. Now this is just as cool. I started with a picture of the Roman Empire, right? And now I want to show you where God's kingdom has expanded to. Here it is. Right. Now there are places who have not gospel. God's kingdom, however, is in most of these places. God's kingdom is in communist China. I told people in the first service, I've never been to North Korea, probably would never get to go to North Korea. Probably even there, although it's not allowed to be. God's kingdom expands the globe, and you are a part of that. There are people meeting on Sunday morning right now all around the world to worship King Jesus and that we need right now. We need hope. We need somebody who tells us that the resurrection is real, that it's true. We need a better leader than the leaders that we have and that are coming. We need Jesus. That's who each and every one of us need. And my question for all of us is, are we, do we believe that we're a part of this kingdom? Do you? If you do, make sure you are putting Jesus for part of Jesus' kingdom. And you are tired of all the kingdoms in the world. And then 
just consuming your thoughts and your actions and not knowing what to do, who to believe, any of that, would you consider making Jesus king? Would you? Would you receive him as Lord and Savior and commit to following him as king, really putting him first place in your life? I believe if you do that, he really will transform your life. Jesus is king. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for sending King Jesus. We thank you that we are not lost, Father, in the kingdoms of this world. That we do not have to be consumed by them. Get all these others. I pray that we remember, Father, that we are not alone worshiping you right now, whether we're in our homes or in this building at this moment. I pray that each person would simply put you first. That they'd worship you above all else. I pray, Father, that we remember that Jesus is king, that we remember that we belong to this king, that we remember, Father, that you have established a kingdom. And we as kingdom people, we don't always get it right. The church is the kingdom right now. But there will be a day when we fully experience the kingdom, where we will live in perfect love, where we will live in perfect harmony, where we will get it right because you will truly be king of everything, ruling and reigning in our hearts without any other, any other thing, person, or place pulling our hearts away from you. I pray, Father, that we are people who strongly believe in you at this moment, that we are people who are committed to following you no matter what, who someday will rule and reign with you. Until that day, may we do a good job of stewarding what you have given us, which are these relationships that we have in this room and beyond this room your church, our families. I pray for even our country at this time. That we would do what you would have Jesus King this morning who feel like, Father, you are calling them to be born again. Father, if you would call somebody to you right now, I pray that they would answer that call that they would trust you as Lord, that they would believe that you have died for their sins and that you have risen from the grave. And all their life, it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.